Welcome to the Modern Warrior Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. Michael Rhodes is the global chair of Cooley's Internet and Data Privacy Practice Group. At Cooley, he has famously represented companies from Google, Facebook, and Zoom recently to mp3.com and eBay decades ago. In those suits, he grappled with some of the most cutting-edge data privacy issues, from biometrics to automated email scanning to privacy in augmented reality. As an early startup attorney representing Silicon Valley's most recognizable companies in their most high-profile litigation, he's seen internet-based businesses develop from a niche group of startups to a powerhouse global industry. In this episode, Michael talks about how he pitched and won a multi-billion dollar client wearing a John Lennon t-shirt, how his upbringing in San Diego as a surfer equipped him with the cultural affinity to relate to some young, chaotic companies, and what attorneys get wrong about winning business. As always, rate us on Apple Podcasts. We hope you like our conversation. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's an honor to have you on. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Mike, you've got a fascinating backstory. In fact, uh, you know, everyone that we have on this podcast comes from a very unique perspective with a very fascinating backstory. Yours is really, really interesting. Um, you come from kind of uh, atypical roots as someone who is now a, you know, a preeminent privacy litigator and a preeminent trial lawyer representing some of the top tech companies in the world. Uh, walk us through your backstory. Introduce us to Mike Rhodes. Where are you from and how did you come up? Well, at the risk of boring the audience, I'm happy to do that. Um, I grew up primarily in uh, Southern California in a quintessential middle class, lower middle class suburb in San Diego. Uh, mid-60s on. Um, and in that era, uh, I went to public school, the, the not not the greatest public schools, but the public schools in the era were, were very well funded. Uh, I was lucky to get into some special programs when I was in junior high school and high school. Uh, and uh, I was sort of a quintessential Southern California beach rat, you know, skating, surfing, riding motorcycles. Um, but I always had uh, an interest in intellectualism, I would say. Uh, I read a lot. And uh, when I got out of high school, I went to UCLA because I wanted to get out of San Diego. Most of my friends went to UCSD uh, because there was a road that led from the UCSD campus down to a, a surf spot called Blacks, which was a very important break in San Diego County. And if you went to UCSD, you could be on the surf team. We were all on the surf team in high school. You could get the key to that road, and it would save you from hiking down the cliff. So that that was that reflects sort of the place I grew up in, and the choices people made around what college to attend. You know, getting the, the key to the Blacks Road. But I went to UCLA, went to LA, and um, studied history. And you know, this was the '70s, and uh, the world was a little slower and a little bit probably a little easier. And I had it in my mind to be an archaeologist. I I wanted to be Indiana Jones before there was the movie Indiana Jones. Um, and as I was applying to and getting into the UCLA School of History, um, reality came knocking in the form of one of my advisors telling me that 
the best thing I could do for myself was to cut my hair and go to law school. Um, and nobody in my family had ever been to graduate school or a professional school post uh, college. Well, my mother went to college for a year. My dad did graduate from University of Oregon. So at least I had some context, but I really had no idea what I was doing. So I went to law school. I did well. And uh, I started out as an associate at Gibson Dun & Crutcher, um, working in primarily the antitrust group. Uh, loved some of the partners there. One guy in particular, uh, I kind of uh, was very enamored with because he was a great trial lawyer, a guy named Bob Cooper, and he had this sort of prairie voice. I think he was originally from Kansas, and I just followed him around and was able to watch him try a couple of cases, and he had a lot of faith in me. So I was able at a very early age in life to get into the court a lot. And then uh, professionally speaking, in uh, the mid-1980s, I met Bob Gunderson and some folks who were at Cooley at the time, and I became uh, fascinated with the idea of working in a Silicon Valley ecosystem. So I joined the firm in 1988 and was instrumental in opening two of the Southern California offices and ultimately was convinced by firm management when I was running the litigation department to get back to the Bay Area. And I've been up here more or less full-time for about a decade. So that's that's the short version. How did you get into tech? What led you to tech and uh, and certainly the, the highest levels of, of tech and privacy litigation that you're currently in? Well, it, it, it's like a lot of things. And if you look at it in hindsight, it seems organized and thoughtful. I'm not somebody who's terribly... Uh, oriented around planning. I'm not a person who you could ask, where do you see yourself in five years? And I would say, I have no earthly idea. Um, I'm, I'm more of a, I would say more try to live in a contemporary uh, sense and focus on where I am. And, and but I have a good eye for opportunity. So in the, I met some folks at Cooley on a case in the mid eighties. And at the time they were kind of a Palo Alto, San Francisco boutique that did a lot of venture capital. They were known for their biotech practice and doing what was then sort of sounds sort of uh, uh, almost silly now to say this, but it was they were known as the high tech firm. That's what we used to call it, high technology or high tech. And I got in, I got enamored with it because it seemed to me I, I, I wasn't that smart, but I had this notion that what was going on in the so-called high-tech arena in the mid-1980s would ultimately become a much more important force in the American economy. At the time, it was sort of just an interesting sidelight, but it wasn't really driving the economy in any meaningful sense. The other thing that occurred to me as a young lawyer uh, at Gibson Dunn, again, where, where I was very happy, uh, loved the work, loved the people, but the type of clients that they were representing were these very large multinational companies and it seemed to me that it would be many years before the phone would ring in my office and it would be a client calling for me. And I wanted to, I, I went to law school to be a lawyer, and in my mind, at least naively so, a lawyer was somebody who went to court and it was somebody who spoke directly to clients and gave them advice. And I thought that if I went to a more valley centric firm at that time, where firms like Wilson Sonsini, I think was 40 or 50 lawyers, Cooley was 75 or 80. Fenwick was probably 30 or 40, and, and you know that was kind of the scale. I thought that I would have a much better chance earlier in my career of being the person the client would actually 
be calling directly. And, and that's what I wanted. I didn't want to just be uh, a lawyer who spent the first 15 or 20 years of my, my practice working on very large, important cases, but not being the person who was able to sort of drive the strategy. So that was at least my thinking at the time. And then once I got there, um, I had a very general practice and, and, you know, I did a lot of things. I mean, it was really what I used to call a junkyard dog kind of practice. Meaning if it was Monday, it was a lease dispute. If it was Tuesday, it was an IP dispute. Wednesday was an employment dispute. Thursday was probably securities. And Friday was, you know, a venture capital dispute. And a lot of these things I was handling were very small matters, but I was just in court every day and, and trying cases very early in my career at Cooley to the point where you just, you know, it's, it was very common uh, for me, you know, eight to 10 years out of law school to have a year where I might have two jury trials and a bench trial and two arbitrations back to back over a eight or 10 month period of time. So it just was always in court, always handling a variety of different matters for a variety of different clients. And early in my career, um, the primary mentors that I had, ironically, were business lawyers. Uh, a guy named Alan Mendelssohn, who is now a very senior partner at Latrim, and another guy named Brad Jeffries, who retired at Cooley a number of years ago. The two of them had these very established relationships with either venture funds or serial entrepreneurs. And my experience as a young lawyer was that in litigation, uh, it was very transactional, meaning that you would compete for a case, you'd get it, and you'd handle the case for however long it took place, and then it would end, and then you'd have to go out and try to source another another matter. But the business lawyers at Cooley, and in particular those two, the ones that I was working closely with, they seemed to have sort of an endless supply of work from a, a handful of committed clients, you know, either funds that were constantly investing in companies or serial entrepreneurs who were starting and selling uh, companies and moving from, from company to company to company. And I remember thinking that was a way better model to develop a career around so that you could start having a lot of repeat customers getting to know their businesses. And, and so I just sort of modeled myself after them and, and developed a lot of the, the skills that I would use much later in my career uh, in that era by just emulating the way they approached it. Um, and at Cooley, of course, we were not doing big industrial work. We were doing a Silicon Valley type practice that we had a, a big emerging company practice, a big capital markets, you know, going public or IPO practice, and then the related practices like securities litigation, intellectual property. But for me, the biggest sort of a break I got was um, the guy that ran the venture capital fund practice at Cooley, Craig Douchy, uh, who I was very close to for many years. He's now retired. Um, I became sort of his go-to commercial litigator for just every manner of you know, odds, uh, cats and dogs, shall we say, that came out of the venture capital practice, working with venture capital uh, partners on either personal matters or small matters relating to their funds. And each one of those funds, of course, had four or five partners, and they would invest in, you know, 15, 20, 30 different companies. And so as I got closer to a couple of them, I would just get put in a lot of the different companies in their portfolio for various commercial disputes. And of course, they were always investing in what I call the leading edge or the bleeding edge of technology, because the, the VCC 
the opportunities first. And then as the companies matriculate along, um, by the time they need a litigator is usually when they have products in commerce or intellectual property or, or joint development uh, agreements or joint venture or other types of commercial arrangements that have started to create friction is when they need me. So I would generally come in, you know, as I always say, two, three, four years after the fact of what they've invested in. But it was almost always in the technology field. And that's where I got my early experience working with technology companies and the people and the entrepreneurs that found them um, and and developed them. Yeah. And yeah. So that's really where I got to start. Right. Now, I was going to say, it, it seems to also maybe a scratch your itch to actually have a, a relationship with the client, right? Actually get those phone calls who are, you know, you, you're a CEO of a particular startup or maybe even a more established tech company asking for you because he or she has a problem that, that needs to be solved, right? Whereas at Gibson Dunn, it, you know, it, it would have to go through three or four layers first. Well, I, I, I think, I think in defense of Gibson, I think they're actually a very entrepreneurial place. And I, I have friends that have stayed there all these years because, because of that very dynamic. But I, I think what I'm saying is that if you start representing a, a, an entrepreneur in a smaller emerging company and they get used to your style and, and, and develop trust and confidence in your approach to the management of risk, which is really all litigation is, um, then what you would see is either they or somebody in their legal department would then go to the next emerging company and then the next one and the next one, or people at the funds would continue to bring me into different uh, companies in their portfolio. And it starts to create this network of people that you've, you've known and worked with in a particular field. And for me, ultimately, that would become the internet. Um, and you become known in that field. And so that's what really, for me, created that network effect that allowed me to kind of expand my practice as I grew up with it. Do you trace back uh, some of the success that you've had in tech to the fact that you are kind of culturally aligned with some of these young companies? You tell you tell a story about pitching a tech company you know, at the time it, that tech company was relatively small, and you pitched the company um, in a T-shirt, and the, the of course the pitch team from uh, another big law firm coming in before you and the one after you were a, a kind of army of lawyers in well-tailored suits, and here you were in a T-shirt. Uh, tell us that story, uh, if you if you will, and also um, you know tell us as to you know give us a sense as to whether. Uh, that's just a kind of a, a coincidence or one-off or whether that kind of cultural affinity to what these tech companies represents really matters. Well, yeah, it's, that is a true story actually. And I think the, the root of that, and it ended up being one of my, probably my largest client in my career. Um, but early, early in there, when they were a very small company finding their way in the world before they were the big multi-billion dollar famous company they are today, uh, they asked a number of law firms to come in and pitch segments of their work. And I had just returned from London with my kids and my wife, and I bought this t-shirt in Soho that was John Lennon at a mixing board um, with the headphones on. And I wore that that shirt to the pitch with jeans and tennis shoes on because I'd been working in the Valley long enough to know that every engineer and person at the company would be dressed the same way I was. And it wasn't so much a calculated effort as it was just a recognition that I was coming out of that same ethos and I understood it. 
And, and I think that's critical to understanding how to work in the space is you do have to understand the personality. I always say that if I wear a, a suit and tie to some of my tech companies, they would imagine the FBI has just arrived. But it, but it goes to the goes to my roots. I mean, where I grew up, you know, in the beach culture in Southern California, um, your sophistication was often masked by the cargo shorts, the flip flops, the and the t-shirts you know, that we all wore because everybody was affecting that outdoor lifestyle image. And you couldn't tell who anybody was, what they did for a living, whether they were successful or whatnot. And, and that has always appealed to me. I was never convinced that just because you work at a law firm, you had to affect a very traditional wainscoted office, the obligatory duck hunting prints, and wear a dark suit and tie to the office every day to be a successful practitioner. The, 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 the environment or the ecosystem that allows you to have that type of attitude, of course, is technology given, given its roots. And so I, I suppose some of my success is just driven by the fact that my personality coming out of the surfing world, uh, it just the way you approach problems, the creativity um, to it, and sort of your willingness to, to be comfortable not having control over everything is something that's very familiar to those who have who have started companies in the valley and, and live in, and breathe in that ecosystem. You've described yourself as a litigation generalist who focuses on a certain type of client. And I'm fascinated by that characterization. What is that certain type of client, aside from just general tech companies? And uh, why why have you kind of carved out that that, you know, maybe this goes too far, but kind of identity for yourself, right? You know, you're the person to call or the person to consult with among these these large tech companies, maybe medium-sized tech companies uh, who are trying to do very disruptive things. How did that come about? Um, I, I think of it this way. There, in litigation, the traditional way that people would approach the market was, at least at the big law firms, I was speaking about sort of, you know, the AMLA 50 or the AMLA 30 kind of law firms. Uh, you develop uh, great expertise about the process of litigation. Litigation in itself is, is largely procedurally driven. And then you would develop domain expertise, whether it be securities, litigation, intellectual property, employment, some other variation of that theme. Based on my early experiences being around a lot of Silicon Valley business lawyers, remember when I joined Cooley, it was probably 30% or less litigation, 70% or more business lawyers. Um, what I noticed is there were business lawyers who specialized in sort of industries, you know, whether it was life sciences or biotech or venture capital or semiconductors or software or, or things of that nature. And that enabled them to get these sort of uh, repeat serial entrepreneurial type clients. And so that was what I was trying to focus on. So by the, by the late 90s, I, I sort of identified the internet as a place that I really wanted to spend the bulk of my practice. And I got a couple early breaks with client relationships uh, that were prominent internet companies. And so I developed the, the expertise around the internet, but also just internet companies, meaning you didn't have to explain to me how the architecture of the web worked. You also didn't have how companies got capitalized by venture capital and the and sort of the, the inflection points in the relationship between 
entrepreneurs and, and the money and the, the, the way the venture capitals thought about uh, all of that. So that's what really influenced my thinking around uh, how to approach the market. And I suppose the thing that appealed to me the most was the uncertainty of it all. Because if you go back to the late 90s, a lot of the rules of the road were not settled. We didn't know where the line of demarcation between laws that were typically uh, developed in an era where none of these business models were even contemplated. And as these new and disruptive business models and technologies came on and quickly supplanted legacy businesses, uh, all kinds of legal challenges would be would be made, whether through the vehicle of a class act or regulatory engagement with the government. And I found it really interesting and exciting that there was so much uncertainty of uh, what I call the intersection of law and innovation, like where that where those two come together. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, and it take for a litigate for a litigation attorney, at least to my perspective was. It, it was sort of the most interesting place to have your professional life exist because you were constantly facing questions about a business model that no one had ever thought about under a legal framework before, and then trying to defend that innovation from legal challenge, whether it was, in my case, digital music or online commerce or auctioning or social media, uh, and on and on it goes. Um, and so that's that's sort of my philosophy of what I tried to do with my career in thinking about where I wanted to go. Not saying that there's anything at all um, wrong with representing insurance companies and banks and being industrial manufacturers. It's just not a space that I wanted to be in. Be in. I preferred the people that were starting companies, taking these tremendous risks, having these amazing visions and wanting to be aligned with that kind of personality and defending them from what I thought in many instances was sort of an unfair attack of a, of a new and creative business model simply because we had found the right pigeonhole of law to stick it in. And, and of course, the, you, you made reference to the, the kind of tagline the intersection of law and innovation. And uh, if I recall correctly, that is close to or is Cooley's current motto or current uh, marketing tagline, correct? It is certainly close to it. And I can't take I can't take sole credit for it, but I was one of the people that helped coin that phrase because I thought it sort of encapsulated what we were doing, whether it was in litigation on business law and all of the other associated services at the firm. We had that kind of in our DNA coming out of you know the valley over the last fifty plus years. In uh, Richard Shu's podcast, which I strongly recommend to my listeners, it's it's excellent. Uh, his podcast podcast is called Shoe Untied, H S U Untied. Uh, you refer to uh, being on the bleeding edge of what VCs funded two years ago, and you alluded to that earlier in this discussion. Um, and, and you just alluded to wanting to be on the cusp of what is disruptive, the fact that you appreciate the folks who are willing to take a big risk to do something that currently doesn't really have a home in the law, doesn't have discrete code sections that protect it. Uh, why is that interesting to you? And, um, you know, why, why is being on the bleeding edge of what was funded uh, two years ago uh, define your career? Well, I was lucky in the sense that I was living in an organization that it, to this day, I think, is the large, we, we do more fund formation, the venture capital fund formation, I should say, specifically 
than any other firm. In fact, Cooley in the 1950s invented the idea in some respects of the institutional venture capital fund. And having grown up for, I've been here over 32 years now, having grown up around that that group of actors, uh, what you learn is what the venture capitalists are seeing at the earliest stages of the next wave of whatever's out there, right? They see it first because if if some entrepreneurs get together, or they get some seed capital together or get some angel money together and then they're ready to have their first kind of what we would say institutional uh, uh, money round and they go out to the venture capitalists to secure capital, it's generally it's going to it's going to draw the VC's interest because it has a potential to do something dramatic and disruptive, which means it's highly risky. By the time I see it, it's usually a couple of years later, right? It's the it's gone it's developed farther along the curve. Maybe there's been a a, a series B or a series C, a mezzanine round, and we're the company's more mature. Maybe there's a product in commerce, a piece of technology that's being distributed. Maybe there's enough commercial agreements out there that some friction has arisen. So what I mean by that is I'm seeing it two or three years later. There's a shadow effect. Um, but by the time I see it, it usually means that there is something unsettled about it, whether it's can an entrepreneur stick 50,000 musical CDs on a server and allow people that possess that same CD to listen to it, uh, which is 20 years ago. Or can you allow third parties to list and sell products on a platform uh, in an auction format, and and what are the laws are going to attach to that, or the idea of social media, or in more recent iterations of my practice, um, if I create a augmented reality uh, game experience for people to play outside, what are the consequences if the virtual objects are either on or near someone's private property, right? So, so to me, it's it's interesting inherently because you're constantly being challenged to learn about the latest and most innovative technologies for business models that are disrupting something. Disruption can take many forms, of course. It can be disruptive older businesses. For example, no one goes to Blockbuster to rent a, v- to rent a tape anymore, right? We don't do that. That business got disrupted. Uh, but it can also be disruptive to the way people have uh, expectations around, for example, use of information or data, what we call privacy, or the use and enjoyment of their property if you've got a bunch of people playing Pokemon Go tromping through your yard. It's disruptive uh, to those sets of expectations. And then the question often arises is, are there laws on the books that could be used to police or regulate that behavior? And I find the exercise of trying to sort of uh, advocate uh, in that space the most interesting because it represents an intellectual challenge of trying to figure out laws that are being asked to apply to something that they never contemplated and what happens if there is a gap or a delta between the law and the, and the business technology, and yet someone wants to regulate it through the form of litigation? I think that's a really good segue to where we are now. We're having like, this conversation in mid-June 2020. And of course, any anyone who's listening knows that this is in the middle of a pandemic. It's also in the middle of a lot of racial strife and protests in this country. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of events that are on a, a amazingly large scale taking place right now. From your perspective, as someone who sees a lot of the trends on an hour-to-hour, day-to-day basis in privacy, 
how is the pandemic and and how is the current state of affairs in this country um, affecting privacy and any potential new claims or potential new threats coming out of privacy, whether that's remote work or, or otherwise? Yeah, I would just say all of the above. Um, you know, you think about our firm's experience. I think the management of Cooley pushed 3,000 plus employees out of the office in a, in a week's time. Um, and so just now having that distributed remote network of people all over creates all kinds of challenges around the information. And, and that's, that's sort of happened to everybody. My, my thesis is we were all going to go toward a more virtual uh, work, workplace experience anyway. And the COVID-19 experience has just accelerated what would have taken 10 years to, to, to occur as we've done in a few months. There's a variety of issues that arise. So obviously, I, I can't really talk about it in detail, but I'm representing Zoom and all of its uh, uh, privacy litigation around the country and indeed around the world. Uh, and so you take people's expectations of how technology should work, what it should be capable of, and what, if any, uh, data about their use of it will be used and for what purpose. So those issues arise. You think about COVID ex itself, and now we're all talking about antibiotic testing or contact tracing, which is those who have shown to be infected with the virus. Are we going to be allowed to then interview them and then contact all of the people with whom they've uh, been in contact? Will apps develop? As, as has been discussed in the media the last three months, that will allow our, our smartphones to be the vehicle by which we will be notified of places that should not be visited because there's a high concentration of cases. Or uh, sh should our phones become the vehicle by which we are tracked if we uh, signal, signal that we are infected or we're part of the contact tracing universe? Uh, so all of that data What's going to happen to it? What are our reasonable expectations of privacy around it? Who's going to get to use it? What are they going to be able to use it for what purpose? How is the data going to be protected to ensure that it's not misused? Uh, all of those kinds of things. You take you talked about the protest. Um, as you may know, I'm representing uh, Facebook in a very large biometric uh, privacy class action. Some have said it's the largest uh, consumer privacy class action in U.S. history. Well, can facial recognition technology be used by the government to ferret out in large groups of people that are publicly demonstrating uh, those who may have crossed the line and committed criminal violations? What technology is available to them? So all of these issues are going to arise in the current climate. And the, the use of data, kind of writ large, data about us, data about our usage, our, our beliefs, um, our travel, all our health, all of those things are going to set off a, a, a large uh, group of, of policy decisions that the, that we are going to, the country is going to have to debate and sort of sort out over the coming years. And I think we're just beginning that dialogue. And, and Mike, presumably a lot of those issues that you just outlined, and certainly many more, are going to end up in court in the next two to three years as well, you think? Yes, I mean at the at the at the one level of it, it's you know the courts are often the place where some of these these value choices or policy choices are tested, and for another, there is a group of enterprising lawyers who 
see opp- opportunities to, frankly, make money um, trying to figure out whether there are legal claims that will will survive coming out of this current experience that we're all having. So those two dynamics are going to end up with the fact that the courts will will make a lot of the decisions here. I mean, the problem with the legislative process is that it is necessarily a set of trade-offs. What, what can you get passed versus what's the best policy? And sometimes the, the choices that are made or the decisions that are made just can't be foresighted enough to imagine the types of technology or business models or social experiences that we're going to face in the future. And that, that it's going to, that's always going to create risk for the litigation mill. I want to transition now to a discussion about business, rainmaking, getting business. And I'm looking right now on my computer at a law.com article. Uh, it's from April 3, 2020, and, and you already mentioned that you represent Zoom, that the, the headline is Zoom taps coolly as company comes under fire for handing over user data to Facebook. And the first sentence is Zoom Video Communications has turned to Cooley's Michael Rhodes to defend the video conferencing app against two lawsuits alleging the company unlawfully funneled user data to Facebook. And I think a lot of folks read articles like this and say, um, and you know, I had the same reaction, and that is, well, of course, Mike got this. You know, Mike's the the Silicon Valley privacy litigator guy. Cooley is from the the preeminent Silicon Valley firm. You know, I bet they just sent Mike an email saying, "Hey, Mike, are you free? Can you, can you handle this? Can you handle this litigation?" And of course, when we discussed this before before this recording, you uh, you, you very much corrected that that misreception. How did this go down? And you don't have to speak uh, directly to this particular um, you know, this particular case, but. You know, how how do you get work in this day and age? Um, and was it as easy as let me just set up the provocative question? Was it as easy as the CEO of Zoom saying, "Hey, Mike, you free? Can you handle this one?" Yeah, right. I just sit in my office and the phone rings and the people just <laughs> say, "Hey, I've got another really amazing case for you," and and I don't have to do anything. Um, you know, I would give you sort of a, a flippant answer and then maybe a more honest one. I, the flippant answer is there really is no such thing as a rainmaker. Um, it, it's a it's a caricature that the legal press likes to create around the senior partner who has all of the business and then doles it out to another group of, of people, and then the senior that senior partner goes off and and you know recreates while everybody else works and and. That's just not reality. The first thing I would note is the people that that I've been around in my 35 year legal career that seem to have seem to attract business and a lot of business were often the hardest working lawyers. So I would start with that. So it's it's dependent on hard work. I think it also depends on you have to be you have to develop a reputation for excellence. Um, but ultimately, and I say this all the time. This is one of my my taglines: Litigation is a team sport. It is not about the individual. There's, there's. I get a lot of credit for a lot of things that have really very little to do with me, and it really is just a function of the fact that I work with an amazing group of people that do incredibly interesting legal work. And just because I may be the the senior person or the person who's going to go ultimately speak about it in court, I'm given way too much credit for for the work individually. 
and often too too often therefore assigned this idea that well you're the the reason the work came in um, holistically or philosophically it really is the the very uh, essence of being a lawyer, right? What, uh, for me, being a great lawyer is, uh, and this is a, a statement I stole from one of my senior partners who's now long retired. She uh, used to run the litigation department when I was a young lawyer. And she said it was all about getting your client to safety in litigation. And that could take many forms. It could mean you have to try the case, you have to settle the case, you have to try the case knowing you're going to lose to get it up to appeal. But the idea is you get your client to safety. and Fundamentally, that means early on in your career, you have to understand this is a human capital business. You have to make connections with people. And that means connect with everybody. One of the earliest uh, substantial pieces of work that, that I got when I was young, me and another partner in San Diego, was from uh, a woman who was the general counsel of a real estate company in Florida. And she was calling me about a RICO case that had been filed against her company. And I just thought it was the strangest thing that this woman would call me uh, in Southern California as the general counsel of a large real estate company in Florida seeking to hire a lawyer to defend a federal racketeering case in Orlando federal court. And we ultimately got hired and we ultimately did defend that case and we ultimately were able to defeat the class certification and get a great result. And when we were all said and done, we, uh, me and my partner, we, we asked her, why she selected us. And the answer was we had handled a, a prior case in Orlando federal court for a different company, a large national retail chain, uh, and had beaten class cert there. And the opposing counsel, the plaintiff's lawyer, was her best friend. And they were talking when she, her company got sued. And she asked him, well, who would you hire of all the folks you've seen on the defense side? And he recommended us. And it was partly because we had treated him um, cordially, civilly, humorously, we got along quite well, even though we were fighting like cats and dogs in the courtroom, we always got along with them. And I think that's the essence of it. The, the, the practice of law is hard. And if you try to rise above some of the pettiness that can creep into it and treat everybody well over a long period of time and demonstrate excellence at your craft and have some, you know, Domain, domain expertise is something, by and large, the work will find you over time. Now, that said, you, there's one rule I learned very early in life, and I learned this from the guy I mentioned before earlier, Brad Jeffries. And he told me a rule that's always stuck with me, which is you'll never get the business if you don't ask for it. And so that's, that's also important to realize that at some point you do have to ask for the business and be prepared for the the opportunity to not come your way and not get too hung up about it. And so how does that, the modern pitch look like, right? I mean, you, you know, you could be Mike Rhodes, you could be, you know, you, you know, the, the Mike Rhodes at, at Morrison Forrester or Wilson or Fenwick or, you know, wherever else, you still have to go and ask for it. You still have to go and pitch the business, correct? I mean, yep. is, am I every, everything? Yeah, everything, even your best clients by and large, that you've worked with. I mean, I have companies that I've worked, you know, literally dozens and dozens of cases for, and a new case comes down, it's very rare that they just hand it to you. They still want to hear from you what your approach is going to be. And it's not about me. It's going to be about who is the team. Um, they want to see the whole team. They want to understand how you would think about the problem. Um, the modern pitch is very little about, I've handled these 
bunch of cases and therefore you should hire me. It's much more about this is the relevant experience that the team has to a particular problem, how we're going to approach it, how we're going to price it, and how we're going to be different than the other firms you're talking to. Um, diversity and inclusion is extremely important in the modern pitch. It's, it's, you know, it's something that every, every client wants to talk about. Uh, it's in, clients want to know, like I said, who's going to do the work top to bottom. Um, and, and I think it goes back to a point I made earlier. The reality is that the so-called rainmakers, again, a, a term that I really can't stand because it's, it's so unfair to the, to the, to the idea that this is really a collective enterprise, a team approach. But, but it's ultimately a recognition that if I'm involved in a pitch, they expect me to do work, right? It's not like I can just show up, you know, give them some hand waving and then somebody else does the work. And one of the things that my clients say to me all the time is they can't stand is the idea that senior folks show up at the, at the early stages of the case and then disappear. So that's another reality of it. So you got to be committed to it. I think the essence of it ultimately is if you borrow from the Downton Abbey uh, uh, TV show and movie, it's we live downstairs as lawyers. The clients live upstairs. And you do have to understand that you're in a service business and you're there to serve. And so it, it takes many different forms, including being responsive, being respectful, being a good team player when they hire somebody else to do another case that you don't get, understanding that it may not have been a good fit. Um, but yeah, the modern the modern pitch is something that is competitive, requires a lot of creative thinking and approach, teamwork, and ultimately uh, pricing. Let's get into to pricing. I know you you've thought very creatively about pricing, alternative fee arrangements, flat fee kind of billing. What role does that play, even in the kind of elite work that that you are doing? I mean, we know that. A flat fee work is fairly common in, say, uh, insurance or you know, high volume repetitive work. That's not the work that you do, though. The work that you do is elite. It's it's bespoke, if I could use that term. Um, yet you are still uh, a proponent of alternative fee arrangements. Uh, how do you come up with these? How do you use them so that they can be win win? Well. If you think about it, there's a lot of good lawyers out there. If you're the client and you go to the market and you need a good lawyer, um, you know the lawyers can, can compete for the business by saying, uh, I'm the best or I'm the best. Or you can say, I know this area better than anyone. But by and large, clients are going to be able to find some really great lawyers that know the same area. So, so what is going to be the differentiator for most clients? It could be familiarity, it could be prior experience, um, it could be a sense about responsiveness, it could be a sense of just, as I always say, litigation is simply the application of judgment to risk. But pricing becomes very important. And, you know, let's take the current stage we are right now. A lot of companies are, are, are struggling financially, or at least they're being prudent financially. So it's not really very tenable to say, you know, here's our hourly rate, take it or leave it. For some matters at the very high end of the food chain, very, very much, you know, existential type of matters, whether big ticket M&A, big ticket litigation, there are some matters that are pretty price sensitive. But by and large, um, litigation and particularly 
at companies is a necessary evil. For every dollar that a company spends on outside litigation, it's a dollar that doesn't go to the engineering team. It's a dollar that doesn't go to the sales team. It's a dollar that doesn't go to research and development. So you have to think of it that way. So I've always thought about alternative fee arrangements as not so much a zero-sum game of who gets the biggest discount or who's going to bear the the risk between the client and the, and the law firm as more of a way to embed yourself with clients by using creative pricing to get you a much broader sense of, of what they do and having more points of contact. So for example, in uh, uh, I've had some companies that are now very large clients of the firm in the early days when they didn't really make money, we would say, we'll do all of your class actions on an annual fixed fee basis or companies. Uh, I've got a client now that we've got four or five patent cases for, for them. And we're developing um, pretty creative uh, fee callers and, and risk assessments that will, will do so much work for this. And if it lands between X and Y, then the, the parties will split that. And if it goes beyond Y, because it's truly unforeseeable, then, We'll get a different types of money. Um, you might you might budget in a way that's seasonal, reflecting your clients' uh, revenues that are different. And the other thing to remember is when you're budgeting uh, litigation, it's just as bad to tell a client you're going to spend a hundred dollars, for example, in a quarter, and then only spend seventy five dollars, because that means that from their perspective. $25 could have been allocated to some other function that will actually make them money or have some other benefit for them. And because they allocated it on the budget to litigation, they don't have that money available to you. So, so alternative fees are ultimately where we all should go, but the billable hour has been a stubborn beast and it's, it's still the mainstay of most of what we do because that's what everybody's used to doing. And it's sort of whether we all dislike that, that mechanism of action or not, it's at least the one that everybody seems to understand how to use. That, that all of all of what you said is, is fascinating to me. I mean, I could speak to you for hours about AFAs and, and you know uh, fee collars and, and all of that, all of that stuff. And and I could I could see that you and I'm sure the the pricing or value team at Cooley takes a very sophisticated approach to this. So that that's um, that's fascinating. Um, I want to ask one last question here. It's a, kind of a similar question I ask uh, to wrap up this podcast, and it it's going to ask you to zoom all the way out to thirty five thousand feet. You've been in, uh, in practice for several decades, and and with that, you've got perspective as to where we've come from as a legal industry and maybe where we're going. Can you give us some predictions as to what you see? Uh, not for yourself. I know you you can't make predictions of where you will be in five years, but if you're looking at the legal industry uh, and you know, call it 10, 15, 20 years out, what do you see uh, happening in the legal industry as far as large trends based on what uh, movement you're already seeing today? I think that you will see an acceleration of the use of legal technology and data analytics. Um, whether it's a, a big sophisticated client that has employment case number 200 for the year and they're bidding it out to their outside law firm and they can utilize a database that tells them exactly what that should cause to, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and bots uh, in the future, looking at a public-public uh, M&A transaction and uh, they analyze the, the 20 comparable deals 
crunch all of the economics of both companies and generate a sort of, you know, target uh, term sheet rather than having endless battles of, of sort of human and manual negotiation or just two of them. I don't expect legal research to be anything other than you just talking into a, an Echo or Google Home-like device where you just ask the 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 artificial intelligence assistant in your office, uh, you know, hey, Google, I need a case in Mississippi that stands for the proposition of tax. So I think a lot of... I see, my, my Google assistant is now actually talking to me in my office. <laughs> um, so I think a lot, I, I think a lot of the, the trends around legal tech will accelerate and change the way we we uh, we practice law. Uh, my own firm is involved with a joint venture project with CMS, the very large international firm. We launched a product recently called Lupal, L-U-P-L, uh, which is a, a interoperability tool that allows clients and, and law firms to sort of engage in this wholesale uh, information exchange, organization, calendaring, communications uh, pathway. So I think all of that will be taking place. And so a lot of the rote tasks that I started my career at where, where you had to wear a suit and tie, go to a physical library with physical books to conduct any type of research or, or legal writing on an actual piece of paper that was handed to a typing uh, pool to be typed up. Um, you know, I started practicing in the era when there was no computerization at all. So I think all of that will change and that will create uh, opportunities and challenges for law firms in the future. I think this work from home will accelerate the reduction of physical spaces, change the relationship of administrative personnel and all of those things. So that's sort of on the one hand. On the other hand, I think lawyering at its core, it goes back to something I've said now several times, particularly in litigation. It's what clients want in the end is they want great judgment. They want great judgment from their lawyers. Sure, they expect their lawyers to be brilliant, great writers, uh, you know, sources of knowledge, have great domain expertise. But at the end of the day, what clients are looking for is they want you to help them solve their legal problem. They want you to get them to safety. And so that part of the practice will never change. It will still be driven by the, the, the most successful practitioners will be those people that are best able to quickly identify the, the, the issue on the table and, and develop a solution for it in the quickest and cheapest way possible. And that will mean if you're going to court, it will, be, it will still be about telling a story. Ultimately, you may use very different technologies. I argued a case last week in federal court using Zoom. And so the way in which we argue and present information will change and change dramatically. But the core of it will remain the same, which is advising clients on the most creative, uh, efficient, both from a cost perspective and a time perspective, way to handle their fundamental legal challenges. Huge amount of fascinating stuff in there. Again, we could uh, we could spend hours and hours unpacking all of what you just went through in that last answer. Um, so, Mike, you know, this has just been a, an incredibly interesting conversation. I really appreciate you joining us on the Modern Lawyer podcast, and I know all of our listeners will be very fascinated by this very broad ranging conversation. So, so a sincere thank you on behalf of the Case Text team and the Modern Lawyer podcast. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag modernlawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. 
We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.